Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm film critic April Wolf. Every week I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, actor, director, producer, and we talk in depth about one of their fave genre films, perhaps one that influenced their own work in uh, some small way. And today I'm really excited to have writer-director Madeline Olnick here with me. Hi. Hi there. (laughs) For those of you who are not as familiar with Madeline's work, please let me give you an introduction. Madeline is a New York City-based playwright and filmmaker. She graduated from NYU with a BFA in drama, where she trained in the acting conservatory program and then went into the MFA in playwriting program at Brown University. After receiving, this is very, very prestigious, after receiving a full merit-based scholarship. Merit. What what is merit these days? What is that? Merit, it's just, in the case of playwriting, it's that you have a good ear for dialogue. Ooh. Um, So she also has an MFA in film from Columbia University, uh, where she was awarded the prestigious William Goldman Screenwriting Fellowship. And she put these degrees to good use because her award-winning and widely screened comedy shorts, Countertransference and Hold Up were official selections of Sundance, while Make Room for Phyllis premiered at Sarasota. Olnick was also awarded Best Female Short Film Director at Sundance in 2009 by LA's Women in Film Organization. Her debut feature, Codependent Lesbian Space Alien Seek Same, told the story of a of three lesbian space aliens who come to Earth, and one of them falls in love with an Earthling. Lots of hijinks ensue. It's <laughs> very funny, f- very funny movie. Where is that? Can people find yeah, that? Yeah, uh, you can see it on Amazon. All right, there's one. All right, and it premiered. Um, it premiered at Sundance 2011, and is now translated into 11 languages, having also screened at MoMA and the VNL. Her second feature, The Foxy Merkins, is a kind of buddy comedy homage, is how I would describe it. Yes. About two lesbian prostitutes, essentially. And yes, it, t- it sort of t- it takes place in an unreal world. Yeah. It's about these um, lesbian hookers who are picked up by housewives and Republican women. Um, and they wait for their customers in front of Talbots. Yes. <laughs> My favorite part is the Talbots thing because it's, oh, Talbots at the mall. Um, okay, so that was uh, playing at Sundance 2014, BAM Cinema, Cinema Fest, Lincoln Center, and an NYC theatrical run at IFP. The film had its international premiere at the Moscow Film Festival and was nominated for an Independent Spirit Award. As a playwright, Mallon has been commissioned by the Dixon Place, the Atlantic Theater, the the Actors Theater of Louisville, and the Public Theater. She is one of the authors of The Practical Handbook for the Actor, with a foreword by David Mamet, a widely used acting textbook. And now she's back with her third feature, Wild Nights with Emily, a perhaps more truthful yet comic telling of the life of Emily Dickinson, starring Molly Shannon as the eponymous poet. Uh, Madeline was awarded the Guggenheim Fellowship for the completion of the film, so it is a big deal! Thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Therefore... That is your life. Yes, thanks. It Um, felt uh, I was having various flashbacks during the retelling. I just need to pull myself together now for this podcast. One, two, three. Okay. Madeline. Thanks. The movie that you picked to talk about today is Mulholland Drive. That's right. Could you tell me a little bit about why it's one of your fave genre films? Mulholland Drive is like the Bible. Okay. It can. It has a million different interpretations. You get something out of it every time you look at it. Mm-hmm. You look at it in the context of the times it was made. It has a new meaning in a new time. It's as a film. 
Mulholland Drive is a film. It is not a TV show no. that's on the screen. <laughs> it's not something that could be in any other form. Mm-hmm. Um, David Lynch is our great poet of filmmaking. Um, and the movie is frankly a masterpiece. Okay, well, I and guess. now we can end the podcast. I was just like, well, we're done. <laughs> we're done. She pulled out the masterpiece words. So, um, for those of you who haven't seen Mulholland Drive, again, I don't know if we can spoil this movie. Today's episode will give you some spoilers, but that shouldn't stop you from it listening. It won't spoil. You can't no. spoil that movie. Just, just watch it. But my motto, as always, I have to say this on the podcast: so it is not what happens, but how it happens that makes yes. a movie worth watching. Still, if you would like to. Uh, pause and watch Mulholland Drive, I highly encourage you to do that. Mm -hmm. And now you're back. So let's introduce Mulholland Drive with a quick synopsis. (laughs) We can do that. Okay. Written and directed by David Lynch. Mulholland Drive stars Laura Elena Herring as a nameless survivor of a car crash who wanders into an apartment and assumes the name Rita after seeing a poster for the movie Gilda. Another aspiring actress, Naomi Watts' Betty, enters the apartment expecting to find her Aunt Ruth, but finds Rita instead. Oh my, I'm sorry. My Aunt Ruth didn't tell me someone was going to be here. I'm so sorry. It's okay. I'm Ruth's niece. My name's Betty. I'm sure she told you I was coming. There was an accident. I came here. Rita has amnesia, and Betty wants to help her, so she looks in her purse and finds a large sum of money and a blue key. At a diner, a man tells someone about his terrible nightmare. There's a man in back of this place. He's the one who's doing it. I can see him through the wall. I can see his face. I hope that I never see that face ever outside of a dream. And then when he investigates what he saw in his dream behind the diner, he dies of fright. Elsewhere, director Adam Kesher's life is thrown into tumult after his wife cheats on him, a movie is taken over by mobsters, and a mysterious figure demand he cast an unknown actress named Camilla. It's not a recommendation. This is the girl. What girl? For what? What is this, Ray? Later, Betty and Rita go to the diner, see the name Diane sparking a memory for Rita, the name Diane Selwyn. I remember something. What is it? Diane Selwyn. Maybe that's my name. They look her up in the phone book, but she doesn't answer. Then Betty goes on an audition and does very well, but when she's taken to see Adam, she runs away. Betty and Rita break into Diane Selwyn's house and find a dead body in the bed. The two are freaked out and return home together where they have sex until Rita insists they go to a nightclub called Club Silencio, where Rebecca Del Rio lip syncs to her own recording of Roy Roy Orbison's crying. Betty finds a blue box in her purse. 
They go home, and Rita gets her blue key and opens the box, but Betty has mysteriously disappeared, and we don't ever get to see what's in the box. So cut to a woman that looks exactly like Betty, waking up in Diane Selwyn's house. She's deeply depressed and distraught about her failed relationship with Camilla Rhodes, who looks exactly like Rita and is a successful actress. Diane goes to a party at Adam's house and is tortured when Camilla makes out with Adam in front of her. Oh, and also kisses the woman who was playing Camille earlier. Greatest moment. Whoa. Okay. Diane meets with the hitman and negotiates Camilla's murder. Okay, now once you hand that over to me, it's a done deal. You sure you want this? More than anything in this world. He tells her the blue key will be in her apartment when it's done. Diane freaks the fuck out and shoots herself in a fit of terrible, terrible grief. And I don't... (laughs) First of all, I mean, it's really the story of my life, I felt. Okay. Yeah. Tell me. Why is that? (laughs) Well, let let me just give a little background. Okay. The first time I saw the movie. So I was reading the newspaper that was back. It came out back when people looked at newspapers for their movie listings. Mm-hmm. I was looking in the newspaper, and it was like, hottest lesbian sex scene of the year. And I was like, taxi, taxi. You know, this was when there was like no lesbian stories on screen at all. <laughs> so I was like, taxi, rush over to the theater, watch, and watching this movie, and then the scene between the, the first sex scene between the two women. Mm-hmm. And I was like, are you kidding? That was it. Like, it was like two stewardesses. Like, it was so sterile and so fake I was like, are you kidding? Like, I sat there, you know, immediately launched into my typical resentment. And then as the movie unfolds, you find out there's this whole other layer mm-hmm. and underneath it. And that layer underneath is really true. Like, then the erotic scenes that are so that happen on that other layer are so full of um, genuine emotion and Mm -hmm. jealousy and resentment and um, hurt. And I mean, it's just incredible. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's how I a little bit felt about my existence. You know, at that point, I you couldn't really see any representation. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I couldn't see any representation on screen that I identified with. Yeah. Um, and I felt like that there were certain stories that were never told. And when stories were told, they weren't told from the female perspective. Yeah. Um, and by saying that, I mean... It's not just that, you know, anyone can tell a story, you know what I mean? Like getting the true voice of the character and reality. Mm -hmm. um, It always was so so false, so fake-o. Yeah. And with Hollywood, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. But that's built into this story. We understand that there's, we don't understand it. And this is where David Lynch, you know, he, he has guts. Like, do you start this movie and you're like, am I really watching this? Mm-hmm. What is going on here? And you're you think it's the real layer. Yeah. Um, and if you you um, especially for people, you know, as time goes on and less people know who David Lynch is, although that's not really true. I don't know if there'll ever not be yet. a point in our not culture. Yet. But when you're watching the movie, 
you are pulled into this reality where everyone emotionally is calibrated to the superficial level. Yes. Um, it almost feels like, it definitely feels like you're watching a movie from the 30s. Mm-hmm. And that's set up as a reality. And it they maintain that level for a long time before you go into the last third of the movie, the underground level. And where you said, you know, the character who looks just like Betty, who, you know, is now uh, Diane, I think. Yeah. Um, Well, the first time I saw the movie, I was so emotionally pulled into it. I didn't even realize this is I'm embarrassed to say this. I didn't even realize that both of those characters were played by Naomi Watts. Oh, yeah. Okay. Because she brings so many different qualities to each character, and she brings this emotional register that's completely organic and resonant um, and the reality for that character. Um, and I sadly, I don't have it with me, but I did write a 20-page paper about this movie <laughs> <laughs> oh my god point. is it like online somewhere like it's a pdf not. of Maybe like a I thesis should. that you have but it was about i mean this movie not at all david lynch's intentions but again like the bible how people can interpret things you know to their liking yes to me this movie summarized so much of what i felt about having my own experience not marginalized and not represented in any real way mm-hmm. um and how there was the glamour of these two women and this glamorous life and she arrives in LA and she aces an audition and all this level of glamour. But then there was the reality of her life, which was she lived in this skanky, you know, yeah. dilapidated uh, bungalow. In um, she, um, her, she had no prospects. She had been used by someone and cast aside. You mentioned that moment where... Um, where the character who's called Rita, even though that's not her name, yeah. then Camilla, Camilla kisses the other one who's also Camilla Rhodes. Yeah. Um, and that that's just, I mean, these moments that happen, the guy with a cowboy hat walking through the party. Yeah. Um, there's no other filmmaker who comes closer to capturing a dream state uh, yeah. than David Lynch. I think you, okay, so you've sparked a, few things that I definitely want to talk about. There's one that it's almost impossible to interpret this movie the same way twice, even mm-hmm. like personally, or that someone else will interpret it the same way that you will. Right. Uh, Lily Enelik uh, for Vanity Fair wrote, the feeling is that to do so is to submit to a kind of cinematic Rorschach test. Your perception of the inkblot plot more real ve- more revealing of you than the inkblot pot right, plot. Right, right, right. In other words, it's a sucker's game, and the temptation is to play it safe, tend to the gnomic, to say, for example, that Mulholland is a riddle that cannot be solved, or a Grimm's fairy tale set in the fantasy capital of the world, a neighborhood that is also a state of mind, Hollywood, California. Or, and now I'm quoting Lynch, part one, she found herself inside the perfect mystery, part two, a sad illusion, part three, love. All of these characterizations are accurate as far as they go, which isn't very. I thought that was an interesting way of putting well, it. Well, but way. that's interesting because, I mean, just I'm stuck on your the last sentence of that quote, 
all of these characterizations are accurate, which is to say not very. She's talking about the characterizations of the film. Mm -hmm. But within the film itself, the characterizations of the people are very accurate. Mm -hmm. Um, And so do you think I mean, is that one of the successes of this where you can have a dreamlike state, but the characterizations, the kind of grounding factor of these people's is, is what going to, you know, it's going to keep us coming back to it. Right. Well, because there's, I remember one of the quotes in my 20-page paper yeah, was stick back in from uh, Justin Thoreau, where he talked about how there's a logic in David Lynch's films that works. You can't explain it. It works almost against your will. Mm-hmm. Like there's some, there's this innate drive or logic Um you know when and people try to stage dreams, yes. like often in movies, someone wakes up and they go, <gasps> and they sit up in their bed. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because I've never sat up in my bed. And I don't know anyone else who sat up in their bed <gasps> like that from the dream. Mm-hmm. But what they're communicating is what it feels like. And so they act out what it feels like, but it would be much stronger if through camera in the medium of film, we gave people the feeling of what that feels like from within the dream. Yes. Um, And that's what David Lynch does. I think that I would say, in terms of the, the riddle quote, by trying to, quote unquote, figure it out in that sense, you are, it's almost like you're reducing poetry to to a decoding like this poem means love yeah. your loved ones every day like well, I mean, you know yeah <laughs> tell you're gonna die soon so but you can't the the poetic form demands ideas that are equal to it yeah and we're talking about poetry and we should be mentioning that wild nights with emily is is also a kind of like your interpretation of facts and all of the historical research that you did and also of Emily's poetry as well mm-hmm. um her her very years long affair with um Sarah her uh, her, her 40 years long romantic relationship mm-hmm. with Susan yes yes um of course you know history kind of paints it as more of like this illicit kind of thing where as opposed it seemed very kind of ordinary yeah it was ordinary <laughs> i mean and it had all the aspects of a long-term relationship. There were ups and downs and part, you know, there's one point for real where Emily Dickinson had an affair with another woman. Um, So, and it's not a, uh, it's not Lynchian in the sense of, there were some, there was a a nod to David Lynch. If you go to see the movie, you'll Mm -hmm. see what it is. But we, we tried to, Make it that I wanted people. I wanted people to have the poems as experiences, not as something that you. Like you were trying to interpret them, is the way that I felt. Interpret it. I think it was more instead of interpret the meaning. I thought of it more like getting the audience to sit inside the language and the feeling inside of the poem. Okay. Not to be detached from it and Mm -hmm. be like, oh, there's that poem, or you know, often. Um, when it's often said that literary biopics are are the worst because you can't dramatize the writing experience, and I thought, mm-hmm. who decided that? I mean, the writing experience and the experience of shaping ideas is very dramatic. Mm-hmm. People just haven't been going about it with the right in the right way, with the right camera language, with the right point of view. Um, so that's what we did. We wanted 
And among our biggest compliments are when people say, A, I never would have seen an Emily Dickinson movie in mm-hmm. my life, or B, I never wanted to read Emily Dickinson's poems, but now that I've seen this movie, I want to go home and read everything I can. Yes. I mean, it, it's an interesting thing, you know, both you and David Lynch are trying to film what we've quote unquote said called the unfilmable. That's <laughs> Sorry, there is a ringing in my head because you just put my name in the same sentence as David Lynch, like we are doing the same things. <laughs> I mean, I, he's just I hope he sees your movie. Well, also, I, lo- I know it's not the subject of today, but uh, Inland Empire, it's also genius. Which is a spiritual successor to Mulholland yes, Drive, for yes. sure. Um, so amazing. Oh, my God. Um, I, I've watched that many, many times. But on to, back to Mulholland Drive. But, yeah, back to Mulholland Drive. There's um, First of all, so this show that you have, people <laughs> sit and talk about other movies that aren't Mulholland Drive. Uh, how do they even <laughs> have that much to talk about? I don't know. Somehow we manage every... <laughs> I mean, you know, one of your stars just came and talked about the peanut butter solution. Right, so. right. <laughs> Uh, We're actually going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to go back to something that you mentioned earlier, which is the kind of intensity and layers that Naomi Watts brings to this performance. So we'll uh, take a quick break and we'll be right back. Dead Pilot Society brings you exclusive readings of comedy pilots that were never made, featuring actors like Patton Oswalt. So the vampire from the future sleeps in the dude's studio during the day, and they hunt monsters at night. It's Blade meets the odd couple. Adam Scott and Jane Levy. Come on, Corey. She's too serious, too businessy. She doesn't know the hokey pokey. Well, she'll learn what it's all about. <laughs> Busy Phillips and Dave Keckner. Baby, this is family. My uncle Tell, who showed his wiener to Cinderella at Disneyland, is family. Do you want him staying with us? He did stay with us for three months. And he was a delight. <laughs> a new pilot every month, only on Dead Pilot Society for Maximum Fun. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Madeline Olnick, and we're talking about Mahan Drive. Greatest movie ever is what we're talking about. <laughs> yes. So you had mentioned Naomi Watts, and I wanted to get into something about her state of mind when she got cast in this. She said, quote, It was bleak. I kept getting rejected. The feedback was that I was too intense. I was in New York with my family when I heard that David wanted to meet, and it was like, my God, the last time I changed my plans to go to an audition, I looked up and saw that the director actually had his eyes closed, was having a nap. I got a cheap ticket, went straight from the airport to Joanna's office. Joanna uh, Ray is uh, the casting director for David Lynch. I noticed that um, David was asking me questions, looking me in the eye. I felt like I was talking to a person, not somebody I had to fight to convince that I was right for the part. He was able to see beyond that mood and I'd been bringing what I'd been bringing to the room and freaking people out with. He just opened me up. I thought that was a really lovely thing to read because women in general kind of get knocked for being intense. And mm-hmm. when you're an actor and maybe there aren't roles that fit someone with intensity, I think it must be soul crushing if you can't find someone who appreciates that. What does she call it? The, the energy that she'd been freaking people out with. <laughs> uh, well, I also think that 
you're also describing a director who genuinely takes performers in, mm-hmm. who looks them in the eye, who's not whoever was napping, you know. Fuck them. I mean, who as a director who wouldn't be interested in hearing what an actor as coming from their point of view as a performer interpreting yeah. material has to say, even if it might not be the person who's right for the part. Yeah. Especially Naomi Watts of all people too. Well, like, but really? remember that was her big yeah. This was the one, you know, before that, this was her big yeah. um, stepping stone, I guess. I, I could be wrong about that, but I think I'm no, right. No, I think it is. Yeah. yeah. She was doing a little bit of stage stuff, some mm-hmm. smaller things. But yeah, this is the big one. Do you feel like, I mean, we, we're going to talk but a little also, bit more. But also, I mean, it also reminds me, your quote that you read reminds me of this description I read of her when she was doing, um, she was doing the masturbating scene on camera as... Um, in the in the low rent bungalow as the um, as her as that character I interpret to be a lesbian. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also another twist, which a lot of people don't talk about where it's clear she's going through a breakup with some other woman who lives in that bungalow who Mm -hmm. also resembles um, the quote unquote Rita character. Yes. um, Which is meant to be I'm assuming that's the real breakup. That's yes. going on, that she's fracturing in her mind yes. and not being present to. Yeah. Um, because that woman's a doppelganger, except she's like a lesbian doppelganger for the movie star. Yes. Um, and there's this scene where she's masturbating on camera. And I read that she said to David Lynch, like, just put the camera in my face. I'm going to really go for it. Oh. Um, and... Talking about the earlier representation of the sex scene between the two women, where I was like, this is, I mean, I thought that was what, and that might have been what that newspaper was referring to when they were like, the hottest scene. I was like, are you kidding? It probably was. No, but I mean, I was just like, here we go again, you know, like, just this, these are, you know, these two women are, you know, dolls, you know what I mean? And, And then, but that scene was so, like, she just totally went, but she made herself totally vulnerable mm-hmm. and that's um i don't know when i've seen a scene like that i'm trying to think even since when i've seen someone be so um accessible and vulnerable in terms of the desperation mm-hmm. like what was really amazing was you understood it wasn't about hey let's show a really sexy scene like this you were understanding that that character was trying to connect with this relationship that was over out of profound hurt. Yeah. Um, and that's one reason, like, the the emotions that she goes through are very specific. She's not just, I'm someone acting an orgasm here, mm-hmm. or I'm someone doing this to shut out and just getting lost in this. She's going through, She's you can see, she the camera's on her face, and you can see her going through, like, a series of of emotions as, um, as she's trying to make sense of the fact that this relationship mm-hmm. is over. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would say, is that the kind of, I mean, have you in your own life, in your own work, tried to kind of capture that type of intensity and emotional things? Are you striving for that type of 
thing in your plays and in your films? Yes, you know, how I would you... say, I would say the level of reality is something that I go for. In my second feature, The Foxy Merkins, there was a scene where the cops break into this hotel room where mm-hmm. this lesbian hooker is there with this client, played also played by Susan Ziegler, who played Susan Dickinson in Wild Nights with Emily. Mm-hmm. Um, where the client's name was the the kinky Republican lady, um, which happened to be the name of that character. And um, the cops burst in, and she's, and Lisa Haas is totally naked, head to toe. Yeah. And they start telling her, yelling, drop it, drop it, like she has a gun. She doesn't have any gun. She's just totally naked. And we hold it in this wide shot for, like, past any point, you know. And it's all, it's, it's, a comic scene, and mm-hmm. it gets really big laughs, um, except apparently at one screening for industry press at Sundance, where they, you know, had never seen a large woman on screen, and oh. they were just like, "What were you? What point were you trying to make?" And you know, all this stuff, and um, I was just showing a woman who looks like a woman yeah, on screen. Exactly. I don't know, <laughs> and um, and the reality of it. You know, whereas we're used to seeing carefully edited nude shots. We're used to seeing love scenes where there's great music, variably with very high royalty costs. But mm-hmm. we see these scenes. There's a there's a camera on a dolly or a cam, very fancy camera equipment. There's maybe a fluffer. You know, they have those fluffers on sets mm-hmm. like they do on porns. And they yeah. maybe have an air fan. And it's all like meant to be very smooth, um, but that's not how nudity and sexuality really are. No. No. It's a a much more raw thing that we rarely see a depiction of. Yeah. And so I felt like that to see this was so—and I'm blanking on what year the movie came out in—but there was no acknowledgement at that that time that there were— two layers for women. Like, there was this idea of lesbianism that everyone had, like, oh— you know, even getting hearing like, oh, well, lesbianism, straight guys are into that. So there's no civil rights issues around it. You yeah, know, yeah. But the reality for real lesbians were we're we're women. We're like double women. Yeah. And we're marginalized. And yeah, if you're not doing it for the pleasure of a man. Then, right. Then, then it's not so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, oh. and you're invisible. Yeah. And, and that character that Naomi Watts plays is invisible in Hollywood. She is marginal. She's a marginal woman living, you know, in this really miserable apartment bungalow um, where it's not glamorous at all. And she, even though she's in the same location as where Hollywood and dreams are made, she couldn't be further mm-hmm. from it. Um, and that scene... Where her movie star, I mean, there's so many names, I, I don't even want to confuse the, I'm sure most listeners know the different names or know the movie, but it goes through different realities. And there is a reality in which that character has a movie star girlfriend who's yeah. breaking up with her. And for some reason of utter sadism, brings her along, the movie star brings her along to this party where the movie star is announcing her engagement to this director. So I guess we've saved the best for last. Do you want to tell them? No, you 
Utah. Camila and I. And they're drawing out the announcement, and you're just with Naomi Watts. And then there's this incredible cut to her in the diner, and she's hiring a hitman. Yeah. Um, Which is great. I love where you're just like, yep, my emotion is tumbled over, and I'm going to kill her. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but it's the cut, the, the filmmaking, and she turns her head, and there's a... There is a it turns out dishes have been dropped in the diner and that's part of the noise of the cut. Um, the sound design, what's really interesting, aside from having Angelo Battlemente, yeah. who actually plays a mobster in this film, um, Lynch himself did some of the sound design mm-hmm. and composition and the the use of sound. I mean, he really fulfills whoever it was. Uh, blanking on that Star Wars guy saying uh, sound is 50% of a picture. Yeah. Um, he really uses sound so creatively. That scene where that mobster, these mobsters have provided funding for this movie and mm-hmm. they're having this big meeting with the director and the director's manager and lawyer. And and it's you can tell there's a lot of buildup. You don't know why. Like which? How is the espresso? How is the espresso going to be? We we know you'll be pleased with our choice of espresso. We did a lot of research, and they bring in the espresso. He takes a sip and then he spits the entire thing out onto this white napkin. Not a quick spit. It drools on this napkin, and he does because he doesn't like it. And then immediately, some big sound effects come in, like because the drama of this. The espresso, he hated the espresso, turns into this, you know, huge thing, you know, which it would in a Hollywood meeting. Shit. I'm sorry. That was a highly recommended... That is considered one of the finest espressos in the world, What is going on here? There is no way that girl is in my mind. Yeah, it's so dumb, but it's part of the... But, I mean, only David Lynch would have narrated it and shot that moment that way i think something that that ties into something that i was thinking about too with your movie and with the movies of david lynch is that that sound design and that kind of that kind of aural cue is actually helping figure out what this tone is because there's a ton of competing tones mm-hmm. and there's a shift and so you know like for for Mulholland Drive I would say it's like it's like film noir it's a little bit of horror and then it moves to like a Hollywood satire and then it's like a dirty movie you know and then the pillow talk rom-com right so you've got well, like these well, different but not only that there's farce in it I think David yes. Lynch is one of the great unsung comedic directors yeah. um, that that's the constant through every genre or tone you name there, yeah. there's comedy running all the way through it. Yes. And his comedy, it's so audacious. It takes so much nerve, these ideas, the way he forms them, the way he starts shooting before he's seen the whole movie in his head, mm-hmm. the way he builds it. All of those things are inspirations to me. Um, I know that Mulholland Drive, initially, the first part of it was shot for TV, and that yes. was that shallow le- level. And then funding ran out because the funders were, frankly, baffled by what he had turned into them. Yeah, it and, was ABC. The It was supposed to be the spinoff of Audrey Horn. Audrey Horn was supposed to be 
the story that Naomi Watts has in oh. this. And that was a big problem for them. <laughs> they ended up uh, replacing it, uh, the Thursday 9 p.m. Uh, slot that Lynch was supposed to have with a show called Wasteland, um, the follow-up to Dawson's Creek. Huh. And that was canceled after three episodes. Hmm. <laughs> but still, he said that Mulholland Drive, he, he understood that it had to be a movie. I mean, right. he already shot that, and he reformulated it, as you said, and then went back and shot the, the other layers. Right, it. right, right. But I mean... I know we, it has to be a movie now because it's a movie. Yeah. I mean, yeah. but it had those other layers could only work in movie form and it could only work as an experience you see all at once. It could not be episodic for this for this particular experience, which was how he ended. I think if it had continued as a television series, he might have not gone there. Yeah. Which is interesting. Because that, to me, is where all the meaning is. Yeah. We're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we're going to go a little bit further into the kind of intuitiveness of filmmaking that David Lynch has. So we'll be right back. Thanks so much to the over 28,000 members who joined or upgraded during the 2019 Max Fund Drive and to all of our monthly members. To celebrate hitting our goal this year, we're putting the 2019 Max Fund Drive pins on sale for all $10 and up monthly members. As in past years, you'll be able to get some pins and support a great cause at the same time. The proceeds from this year's sale will support the National Court Appointed Special Advocates Association. National CASA does amazing work for children and youth through a national network of 950 member programs. We are proud to be able to support them. The pin sale will run from April 29th until May 10th. And if you're a $10 and up monthly member, your personalized code is waiting in your inbox right now. For more details, you can head over to MaximumFun.org slash pins. And once again, thank you. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Madeline Olnick, and we are talking about Mulholland Drive. Um, there's, I have a list of all these intuitive things that he has, uh, David Lynch. So I want to get through some of this stuff. For instance, you know, you were talking about the kind of, um, the very layered of like relationship that these two women have that starts out more superficial in this strange way. And then obviously later on you're like, oh, this feels real. Right. Um, so none of the relationship with the women was there at all in the original script. There was no lesbian component whatsoever. It was just not there. But uh, as Haring said, um, Naomi and I got along very, very well, and we had good chemistry. And there was one time where I sort of spanked her. It was innocent, like with my sisters, but David saw, and I think it sparked the creative process. And he confirmed that, where he was just like, oh, no, I saw that. And I was like, oh, yeah, these two. We could actually make them look like work together and it could actually be a realistic kind of moving relationship between them. Mm -hmm. So all that was just sparked from him being like perceptive on set and being willing to follow that with what his actors could give to the story. Well, but I will point out it is a frequent idea among male directors. (laughs) It's true. He's like waiting for it. Is she going to spank her? (laughs) Um. Yeah, but that's, again, where um, 
I, I don't know why this brings this to mind, but in the picture on Amazon, I used to be more very involved in, I should note, that was, you know, very much an activist in the gay community. But now I'm in the Amazon community that I've gotten older. And I look to Amazon for advice on what... <laughs> home shopping products I should buy. <laughs> and I look to the star rate rating system, which is it's almost you can't when you're buying anything on Amazon, like toaster prongs for $7. There's 10,000 people posting very well-written comments and you know, anything four stars or above, it's worthwhile. Mm -hmm. Except so I looked on the movies thing, and Mulholland Drive, rated by over a thousand people, was three stars, or Can't maybe it was three it. and a half stars. I was like, "This just goes to show you, for movies, that idea of consensus is a very dangerous idea. It's bad. It's bad. I mean, but I would hate to think like if I was a young person and I was like, "Oh, look at this movie. Oh, three stars. You know, it's." But um, that's why I was. I tell people to go to Rotten Tomatoes and look at the movies that got sixty-five percent. I'm like, go and see those. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> Just take a that's look. That, see, what, see what's well, divisive. You Emily know? is 95, so I oh, shouldn't. damn! I think people should see the movies that are 95 percent on Rotten Tomatoes, like Wild Nights with Emily. Is this? Um, is this? Oh, I feel like your work has been pretty universally beloved, though. That's not true. No, I mean this one especially because we are telling this. We're the first people to tell this story yeah. about Emily and her long-term. Um, relationship with another woman, and yeah. so there's been there was a, initially a lot of hate, um, but then we uh, I put together a press packet, and it not a press packet it was an additional packet to the press packet. It was about forty pages long, and it traced all this story through rights issues and major yeah. publications, so that people would think, oh, she's not just making this up to be clever she's not what if it's not like <laughs> emily dickinson and susan dickinson started spanking each other on set and i was like wait a minute we should. <laughs> so that's didn't it came about another way but but um it's interesting too you know she laura herring's character gets amnesia yes and it's that's such a resonant um affliction and um, she doesn't know what her name is. She looks at a poster of uh, uh, Gilda, yeah, Gilda, R Rita Hay Hayworth, and says her name's Rita. Um, and it's interesting, you know, in that movie, Gilda, both of the characters, um, Gilda and Johnny, there's the older guy, the creepy guy with the cane, mm -hmm. who is seemingly like having affairs with both of them underneath the language of the 40s or whenever this movie was made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he is, and to both of them, he has said, I was born the day I met you um, in the movie uh, Gilda. And the idea of these two women coming together, one of the big ideas at that time, and again, this is going along with the Bible, except replacing the Bible with um, a lesbian psychology book where it used to be, because of the big stigma connected with homosexuality, mm -hmm. a lot of women used to to sort of say like, oh, well, I've never done this before. Mm -hmm. And I'm only doing this because it's you. Or, you know, I'm not gay. It's just you I'm in love with. But in Mulholland Drive, the character asks the other character, 
have you ever done this before? Mm-hmm. And the other character who says it, who has amnesia says, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and so I loved that moment. And I also loved the moment she comes in. She has she's been in this car accident. She's naked, bleeding from her head. She decides she has to sleep first. You know, we find out later she thinks it's a dream for her. And if mm-hmm. she goes to sleep, she'll wake up from it. And she lies down on the the bed of Betty's aunt. Betty is staying at her aunt's house while her aunt's away making Moving Canada. And Betty doesn't know what to do. And she takes this robe her aunt has left for her and covers um, Laura Herring with it. And then the robe has a note that that uh, Betty's aunt has pinned on it um, that says, enjoy yourself. (laughs) 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 Love, Aunt Rita. And it's just so ironic, like her pulling this robe over this naked, bleeding, you know, like it's just um, really amazing, the layers of, you know, of what she's going through then. Um, And there was another thing I read that David Lynch told Laura Herring Walk when she's in coming in from this car accident. She has this concussion. She goes into this room. She takes off all her clothes and gets in this bed naked. And he told her to walk like a broken doll. Yeah, walk like a broken doll. And then when she's Camilla, the powerful one, he said, walk like a kitty cat. Oh, wow. I didn't know about the kitty cat. Yeah. So, like, those were the two kind of moving back between it, like slow moving feminine driving men crazy versus the broken doll being like broken and and disjointed. And, right, yeah. right. After being made into a doll of their wishing. Yes. I I love is that is that the kind of thing that directions that you give to people we had when we had Amy Simons and she was just like I don't know sometimes Madeline would just like stop you and throw you off the track and like tell you to say something and you'd be like oh okay I'm gonna say something right right <laughs> right well I think it's good to give directions where um, people are approaching things in ways that they necessarily hadn't thought to mm-hmm. and that relate to the subtext of the scene of definitely yeah um is that with or is that without telling them how to say it but just like oh you never you never want to tell them how to say it i mean i would assume but yeah i mean i know when that's the laziest form of directing you don't want to tell people how to say something you want them to understand what's underneath how it's being said. Mm -hmm. And if you communicate that, then they do say it the way you want to, but it comes from an organic place. Mm -hmm. So, um, yes, we, we, um, yeah, I do do a lot of creative things with directing. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You don't have to tell us your, your tips of the, the trade. Uh, can I talk to you about casting? Sure. Because the casting for this, like as we were saying before, um, uh, Joanna Ray is the casting director. I mm-hmm. worked with David Lynch and um, knew him quite well. Uh, and then also his uh, his ex wife, Mary Sweeney, um, uh, editor, producer worked on so many things um she said david doesn't think about actors while he's writing his characters when he looks at an actor's picture he gets a feeling and it needs to match his feeling about the character so he ends up just only looking at these photos rarely and just casting from the photo so Mm. like like laura herring is definitely someone that he saw the photo and said oh i'm not looking at anyone else this is her wow this is the girl. Yeah. Like they say in the movie, this it, is the girl. He's living in a movie <laughs> of his own creation 
maybe we're all living in his movie and we don't quite know yet. I'm not really sure what that is, but I find that an interesting way to cast. And I'm just curious about you for casting. Molly Shannon was not the first thing that I would think of when I was thinking Emily Dickinson. Well, that was actually a very important piece of casting because for that very reason that you just said, Mm -hmm. because um, portrayals of Emily Dickinson to this point have been invested in a version of Emily Dickinson that I don't believe to be the true Emily. Um, There's a way with some casting where the performer has resonant qualities Mm -hmm. that would serve to illuminate the character, especially in the instance of a historical character. Mm -hmm. Um, So casting Molly Shannon as Emily Dickinson was really important because... um, because Emily Dickinson had a lot of joy in her life and were constantly fed this line of how miserable she was, mm-hmm. um, that she was a recluse, which actually wasn't true. She only saw the people she wanted to, which is different than being afraid to see people yeah, or being just, afraid to leave your room. Yeah, you just don't like some people. <laughs> yeah, or you want to do your writing, which yeah. was considered completely outrageous for a woman at that time yeah. to dedicate time to her writing to say, my writing is worthwhile, when she wasn't a famous poet. And um, casting Molly, Molly also has this quality of, even when she was on Saturday Night Live, it was like she was maybe in a different show than everyone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, her form of comedy was really organic and deeply felt. Um, and you saw when you saw her on Saturday Night Live, you thought, here's someone with a really fascinating and unusual mind mm-hmm. who's expressing comedy in a way that we haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. And that's what Emily Dickinson did with poetry. She took the form of poetry, which was this form that everyone was used to in reading in a certain way and having certain subject matter and having things expressed a certain way. And she pushed it to this whole other level. And I felt that there would be a symbiosis uh, between Molly's work as a comedian and a creator of her own characters, as a writer. of I mean, I know she's had people write for her, but she's really been the force behind the creation of her characters. Mm-hmm. And having her play Emily Dickinson, people were going to finally understand these other qualities mm-hmm. of Emily Dickinson because she was the only person I felt who could illuminate them. So immediately when people are like, Molly Shannon plays Emily Dickinson, it throws you for a loop. Yeah. And then when you see the film, you're like, oh, of course she's Emily Dickinson. Of course she is. It's one of those things, too, where I think, you know, we finally got to see that Molly Shannon could do, I mean, we probably already knew, these dramatic roles where you still have humor and and insight with um, other people. That was uh, a really lovely role for her. It is. And and actually, Jude Dry wrote this really interesting article about Molly's career in IndieWire, mm-hmm. where it was about how we're used to seeing people go from Saturday Night Live to having, even though they're very, very successful, careers in the, in the comedy world, mm-hmm. where they're doing other versions of comedy series, they're doing comedy films. They're doing things that we've seen or we expect from someone who works in the field of comedy, Mm -hmm. whereas Molly has gone onto this totally different layer level of these very 
amazing projects which combine seriousness and comedy mm-hmm. um, and plays the heartbreak as full as the laughter and the joy, um, which I think is so important, especially in these times with Donald Trump as our president. I think that artists have a moral obligation to include comedy in their stories. Uh, I, I, I think that's an interesting moral obligation to, to, to think about. I mean, I don't know that people would think about that normally, but it does seem as though it's imperative. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, not even, I mean, in a practical sense for a box office, because you don't want people to feel just down all the time anyway. For but sure. just if you're putting art into the world, then it, you already have a responsibility of how you depict things or how you portray things. Yes. I, I think it's, I have the personal belief that I don't even think it's creative to make a to make a straight-up drama, a straight-up series piece from start to end because we're already living in a world where we're going to die. It's already a tragedy. It's already really sad. If you want to create something, if you want to make something, Mm -hmm. you have to show the audience where the humor is. That's something, before we go, I wanted to make sure that I brought something that you brought up from long earlier in the conversation uh, about the past meeting the present and things kind of colliding. Um, because David Lynch said, you know, when people ask him, like, it feels like this is a movie that's in the 30s. Some things feel like it's from contemporary times. Something, sometimes it feels like it's from, like, the 70s. Like, how are you doing this? And his answer was, um, that's so much like our actual lives. Many times during the day, we plan for the future. And many times in the day, we think of the past. We're listening to retro radio and watching retro TV. There are all kinds of opportunities to relive the past. And there are new things coming up every second. There is some kind of present, but the present is the most elusive because it's going real fast. Hmm. And I thought that was a really lovely way to kind of sum up these things that kind of, uh, the the friction between time and place. Right. I mean, and I also strongly felt that with Wild Nights with Emily Mm -hmm. because part of the idea when you're a writer, which is something I have experience with as being a playwright, Mm -hmm. which is the process is closer to writing poetry than it is being a screenwriter to writing poetry because playwriting is an insular process. Yes. And you're just responsible to yourself, whereas screenwriting, there are other parties and people come in and notes on the script and all that. And I thought about how when you're writing something, it might come out of a moment that happened to you 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, The past becomes the present in writing more than anything. And the idea, and I think one reason why biopics about writers have often not been interesting is it's seen as an a, it's seen as a linear process. Now I write this, now I write this, now this happens, now I write this, now I write this. But it's fluid to past and present. Mm-hmm. And the dream states of those poems are fluid and, and present in the present, even if they came to you in the past and mm-hmm. you're finally writing it years later. So that was, that's especially what he's describing as a reality for writers. <laughs> and that was something we, we, I, I wanted to have in the movie, Wild yeah. Nights with Emily. I mean, there's definitely, there's a contemporary feel to it. And yet there's a feel of um, it being in the past. And there's also a kind of, um, uh, questioning of 
if the past is the past that we think that the past is because it has higher elevated language or, you know, like it's almost like we can't imagine people being funny back then. We can't imagine them having the same jokes back right. then. And they were funny. Yes. I mean, that was the big reveal for me. And I came to a feeling of, you know, when we do, I almost feel like a lot of period films are just imitating other period films. Mm -hmm. So I didn't want to do a film where we're all focused on we're in a period film. I told everyone just to drop that right away. We need authentic this. We need authentic this and and all of that kind of thing. Well, but also in the acting, it can be that people's attention is on seeming period. Yeah. As opposed to relating to the other person in the scene, expressing the ideas and the wants that they have as characters. I like that Molly Shannon's body language to me spoke as a different time period than what I'm used to seeing. Like sometimes her shoulders shrugged and she was just kind of like hanging over. Whereas and, you know, I don't want to necessarily make sure that there that there is a binary between this. But if I look at Cynthia Nixon's portrayal, it's much more kind of straight shouldered. And like, this is what you're supposed to be doing um, in a quiet passion. You know, there's well, she was she was playing the miserable Emily Dickinson. Yeah. Yeah. And there's two <laughs> there's two Emily Dickinson's that survive in our culture at this point. You know, when hopefully. one of them is true. <laughs> and the other one is a is a promo job, you know, delivered courtesy of the patriarchy. Which is something that you will learn about if you watch Wild Nights with Emily. In the movie Wild Nights with Emily, it's explained why we don't know this story. You see the dramatization of how this other version of Emily came into being. And as we wrap up, can you tell people where people, you know, where they can see Wild Nights with Emily? Yes, well, one thing I want to say that's important, we we do say that it's, um, it's, you know, it's appropriate for every age. Um, there's there's poetry in it, beautiful costumes, um, luscious production design. Um, we're calling it um, homoerotic entertainment for the whole family. Oh, um, four, four quadrant homoeroticism. <laughs> it's um, parents can go with their teenage kids. I mean, younger could even go, you know, there's a question of how much, you know, will they get out of M. Dickinson's poetry, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've had people in their 80s and 90s see it and and love the story. You know, the this relationship between these two women, this lifelong romantic relationship is also a friendship and it's also an intellectual relationship relationship. And it's also about, you know, it's about Emily's life as a writer. Mm -hmm. And it's a very important historical piece looking at how Emily Dickinson in her lifetime struggled to get her poems read and struggled to get her her poems in print and wanted them in print Mm -hmm. and seeing her rejected and how she dealt with that. It's very inspirational in a reverse kind of way. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's opposite anything you've ever thought of Emily Dickinson. Um, who was someone with great joy and love in her life. Damn. All right. Thank you so much. Oh, wildnightswithemily.com is where you go to look for a theater near you. (laughs) Wildnightswithemily.com. Thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to Switchblade Sisters. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you do, we'll read it on air. If you want to let us know what you think of the show, you can tweet at us at SwitchbladePod or email us at SwitchbladeSisters at MaximumFun.org. Please check out our Facebook group. That's Facebook.com slash groups slash SwitchbladeSisters. Our producer is Casey O'Brien. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. And this is a production of MaximumFun.org. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture Artist owned Audience supported